All right, good morning, everyone. How are you kids liking school? Isn't school the best? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Three cheers for school. Hip hip. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> um, we are going through a series on discipleship. So let me go ahead and read our passages for today. I'm going to read Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 57 through 62. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me. Uh, this is God's word. As they were going along the road, someone said to them, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, this is God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, you challenge us. You challenge our priorities, our values. Um, if we say we're disciples, you want to reveal to us our hearts uh, and make us people who are single-minded for you. And so I pray, Lord, that uh, through your word, you would be purifying our faith, uh, you would be revealing our hearts, um, and I pray, Lord, that even as we are challenged by your words, we would be encouraged, uh, we would be lifted up and strengthened um, in our faith. Uh, so we really trust that you will do that and that you, uh, when you wound us, it's for our good. Uh, you do surgery on us, on our hearts. And so I pray, Lord, we would um, submit to your uh, healing hand and trust that commitment to you is not burdensome, but it's life-giving and freeing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, if Jesus was a YouTuber... Uh, he would be extremely ineffective at getting subscribers. Because you guys all know this, whenever you watch a YouTube video, at some point, maybe about five minutes in, six minutes in, if, if the video is that long, they'll kind of pause and they'll say, please remember to like and subscribe, you know, leave a comment for the algorithm. And then there's the little like, thing where it pops up and there's like the clicky mouse thing. It's like subscribe, like, click the bell so your notifications turn on. So whenever a new video comes up, you're like, ah, oh, I'm in, you know. Jesus is not a good YouTuber because in this passage, there are people who come up to him and they say, I want to follow you. Like, not like follow, follow, like on Instagram, but like they want to be his disciple. And then if you were, if you were like a political figure, and someone came up to you and they were like, I want to vote for you. What would you say? You say, awesome, amazing. Go tell all your friends to vote for me. But Jesus does something very different. He actually says, he almost dissuades people from being his disciple. This is a very curious thing that he does. 
And I think it's really important that we understand this. Because uh, in the, the, the world of church, the world of like, you know, Mexico missions trips and youth retreats and like, rah, rah, let's get excited for Jesus. I want you to know that those things are all good. Those things are all true. But if people don't tell you the truth that Jesus tells you here, uh, they are doing you a disservice. Because being a disciple is not only Mexico and youth retreat. There is a cost to being a disciple. Now, you guys already know this. Whenever you commit to anything, there is a cost. And there's, there are different uh, acronyms that people use for this. Uh, there's, the, there's FOMO, which is like, you know, everyone talks about FOMO. The, the moment you choose to commit to something, what you're doing, oh, actually, FOBO is a better one, uh, the fear of better options, right? When, when you choose to do something, you are, are automatically eliminating, like, branches of possibilities for your life, right? And so uh, when you're in college or when you're, like, a young adult and you're, like, having a fun time, going to restaurants with your friends, living it up, uh, something interesting happens where sometimes multiple friends invite you to do something, and then you're always like, which one should I choose? When you choose this one, you look on Instagram, and the other group is having a bunch of fun. You're like, hmm, I wonder if I'm missing out on something better. Let me give you another one. There is a TV show by a since-canceled stand-up comedian named Aziz Ansari, and I think his reputation has been slightly rehabilitated. But anyway, he, he wrote a show, and I think he directed episodes, called Master of None. And in it, he's like a second-generation um, Indian-American who is going through the trials of dating on the, um, the dating app, in the dating app world. Like, so he's a millennial. He's trying to figure out, like, his love life. He's trying to figure out what his purpose is as an adult. And there's this one part where he's in a close, committed relationship with a girl, and she's awesome. They're funny. They get along really well. They're super cute together. They go on, like like fun, exciting adventures to like Nashville and eat food and take pictures. They're having a great time. And in a, a couple of episodes, their relationship goes through a very long progression of time. Uh, maybe a year passes and it's a montage of all of the kind of like intimate moments in a relationship, their closeness, all of the fights that you have in a relationship. And then they're attending a wedding and they're looking at the couple who's getting married and they're kind of Whenever this happens, if you're ever dating someone, you go to a wedding. So I don't know if you, some of you went to Tammy's wedding not too long ago. If you're in a relationship and you go to a wedding, it is inevitable that you think about the person you're dating when you go to the wedding. And you think to yourself, would I want to stand up there with the person I'm dating and make a commitment to them? And so what's really interesting, in Master of None, Aziz Ansari talks about FOBO. He says, in the world, and he actually, okay, I'm nerding out. Uh, he wrote a book, a, a sociology book, with a very famous uh, sociologist named Eric Kleinberg, I believe, uh, called Modern Romance, where he talks about how difficult dating apps are. Because on dating apps, the issue is not that, like, dating apps do a tremendous job at potentially connecting you to people who you would be compatible with. The problem is, Whenever you see the imperfections of the person right in front of you, the person who actually matched with you and you're going out on a date with them, a little thought creeps into the back of your mind and you're always like, what if there's someone 
better. Because at your fingertips are, if you're a girl, like maybe like, you know, there are hundreds of guys who are messaging me and like, I, I have to like, you know, like crush all of their dreams. If you're a guy on dating apps, it's much harder to get any matches at all. But uh, that's just the way things are. But the tendency is, well, what's really interesting is in modern romance, Aziz Ansari says, many people have reported that when they, are, when they meet someone through a dating app, it's hard for them to be content with the relationship because of the fear of a better option. You can just go back on Tinder or Hinge or whatever dating app you use, and you start swiping and you look, look for someone who might be better than this person. They have imperfections. We got in a fight. Maybe there's someone better out, for me, out there for me. And so Aziz Ansari, in the same way, they're at a wedding, and the, the images and possibilities flash before his eyes, and he thinks to himself, can I really commit to this girl? Because what if there's someone more attractive, or smarter, or richer, or whatever it might be, funnier, more talented? And so he's paralyzed by a fear of better options. What Jesus is trying to do in this passage is he's trying to say, I want you to think through your commitment before you commit. And that is just being truthful and helpful, right? This is the problem. If as a pastor or a preacher, I'm a salesperson, I will emphasize the good things of Jesus to, to convince you. And, you know, in, in marketing, they talk about closing the deal, right? At some point, you're starting to pull on the person's heartstrings you know, oh, this product will be so great for you. Think about all the money your company will save. And then you see the weakness in their eyes. We're like, hmm, that's pretty interesting. Maybe that would help our company. And then you close the deal. You say whatever it takes to get them to sign on the, on the dotted line, right? And in the same way, in church, people can try to close the deal on you, where they're trying to put pressure on you and say, oh, you know, <laughs> parents, you're like, oh, I really want you to get baptized before you go off to college. You know, I really want you to. You don't have to, but it would be really great if you did. And then they talk to Dan, and they're like, Dan, go talk to my, <laughs> I'm serious, go talk to my kid, try to convince them. This is not how Jesus works. Because Jesus says, know what you're getting into when you're committing. When you're committing to Jesus, to be a disciple means giving up many things. Okay? There is a costliness to being a disciple. And so this is really bad marketing for Jesus, it's really bad marketing. If I wanted to sell you on Jesus, I should just give all of the benefits, right? This is how amazing your life will be. Life with Jesus will be such a great adventure, you know, like, um, and there is truth to that. Life with Jesus is joy. Life with Jesus is peace. All of these things. But at the same time, when Jesus is talking to people who want to be his disciples, he warns them that there is a cost. And so if you didn't realize, today we're talking about commitment. Uh, what is my definition of a disciple? Someone other than Joshua. <laughs> what is my definition of a disciple? I really want to drill this into your heads. Just, just shout it out, Amber. Oh, okay. A student. Yeah, so, okay, that's really good. A disciple is a student. I have a really annoying three-part definition for a disciple. A disciple is someone who commits to a master to learn from them so they can become like them, okay? So you are not just a student who gets information for a test. You are someone who begins to model your whole life after this guru. And so in the age of YouTube, like they are an influencer. And the whole point of an influencer is 
you not only like, you want to become like them. There, there's something attractive about their life, like a makeup person. Oh, look at how great their makeup work is or whatever. Um, or like, look at how fashionable they are. I want to be like them. Or look at how buff they are. I want to wait, lift weights like them. Or look at their guitar playing. I want to learn guitar like them. So they have something you want, and then you commit to them where you're like, I'm going to follow this person's instruction, and then you have to learn from them, which involves both information and embodying their practices, and then over time, you become more like them. So if you're following a makeup channel, you put into practice their makeup practices in a way that your makeup looks like the makeup artist here, right? And so this is a disciple, someone who commits to a master to learn from them so they can become like them, okay? So commit, learn, become like, okay? So today we're talking, we've talked about learning from Jesus, learning what practices formed him. We've talked about scripture. We've talked about prayer. Today we're going to talk about commitment. And what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to dissuade you from being a disciple of Jesus. I mean, not really, but that's part of what's going on here. Jesus wants you to be clear-eyed when you're getting into these types of decisions. And so I'm not saying that youth retreat or Mexico is bad, but there is one tendency that being in really emotionally charged settings can have is there's something that happens in you where you are kind of, people talk about a high, you're high on spiritual emotions, you're high on the group energy, and so you make a commitment without carefully considering and thinking soberly about what you're actually getting into. And so this is why Jesus' teaching is so important. So for those of you who got baptized, I'm not trying to get, get you to unbaptize yourself. That's not possible. But I, I hope it's actually helpful because you can start to think more about what this means and the implications this has for your life, okay? What does it mean to be committed to Jesus? So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the rupture of discipleship. So this is like the bad news or the cost to being a disciple. We're going to look at the single-mindedness of discipleship, and then we're going to look at the joy of commitment, okay? So again, when I was talking about fear of better options, when I was talking about the fear that comes along with committing yourself fully to anything, to anyone, I just want you to think through that. What are the things that you are so sold in, sold on? Like, I am committed to this. I'm committed to this forever. What are those things? And then I just want you to think through, uh, are those worth it? And is commitment ever worth it? Or is it better to keep your options open? These are all questions we have to think about how we live our life, okay? So let's keep going. Um, the rupture of discipleship. So in this passage, we'll see a few things, but this is from my dad. My dad, um, I was chatting with him about this passage, and he gave me his sermon outline. And in this passage, Jesus asks his disciples to give up your place, your people, and your past. And so right off the bat, as we're looking through these three different people who come to Jesus, for each one of them, Jesus tells them, if you want to follow me, it's going to cost you something. So let's look real briefly at the first one. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So this guy is a go-getter, right? He comes up to Jesus. Jesus doesn't like go over to him and say, Ann, I want you to be my disciple. Ann's like, oh, choose me, choose me. You know, like Jesus is walking on the road, and then the person runs up to him. And he's like, I want to be your disciple. And then Jesus says, oh, well, come along. No, 
He says this, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And this is actually really profound and tragic. What Jesus is saying is, you know those animals out there? Foxes. Like, these would not, I don't think, when, when they're thinking about foxes and birds, I don't think they're thinking about, like, super cute Disney-fied animals or, like, you know, cute little animal, like, Agretsuko, I don't know, anime, whatever. They're not thinking about cute stuff. These are just animals, wild animals. And wild animals have it better than Jesus. Wild animals have it better than the disciples of Jesus in a really profound way. What he's saying is foxes have holes. A hole is a place where foxes can go to be safe. They, can, they have a place that's their own. It's secure. Birds have nests. And so you can think about the image of, you know, like a mother bird who has built a nest for her chicks, and they are sheltered there in that nest, and the mother bird is like, you know, putting her wings over them to shelter them and protect them. So it's a place of peace and security and belonging. It's a place of comfort. But Jesus says, the Son of Man, and when he says Son of Man, uh, there is a prophecy in the book of Daniel where there would be a Christ, a messianic figure, um, who would become king of Israel. So God promised that he would send this son of man. So son of man is like, it's a little, some people think this is emphasizing Jesus' humanity. In reality, it's kind of emphasizing his kingliness, and you could almost say his godliness. So he's saying son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And so what Jesus is thinking here is, okay, you say you want to follow me, but do you realize where I'm going? And he both means this figuratively and literally. Because right before this, in verse 51, there's a major turning point in the book of Luke where it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so taken up means Jesus knows that he's going to die on a Roman cross in Jerusalem. And so the day had come for him to be taken up, the days drew near, he set his face. He was determined to go to the cross, and he had to kind of steal himself and prepare himself for this suffering. And so Jesus is saying to you, you are so idealistic. You think that following me, and we don't know exactly what this guy was thinking. Maybe he was thinking, oh, you know, like, if I follow Jesus, I'll get everything I ever wanted in life. I'll get the best girlfriend. I'll make the most money. I'll get into the best college. Maybe he was just thinking, I want to be a part of what you're doing. But Jesus is saying, you are idealistic. Let me tell you what's going to happen if you follow me. You're going to go to the cross. That's literally what happened. And when you look at Jesus' disciples, by associating him with him, he was a criminal who was indicted. By associating with him, they were putting themselves, they were putting a bullseye on their backs, right? Where they potentially could be killed or arrested or whatever it might be. So Jesus is saying that literally, but he's also saying it figuratively. He's saying, if you really want to follow me, it means leaving behind comfort, leaving behind security and a sense of belonging and a sense of home. So this, these things are good, but they can actually be an obstacle to us being committed to Jesus. Let me use some examples of this. Um, there is a person uh, that I... Uh, knew who uh, 
basically, I would say, believed in God, believed in Jesus, talked to God, talked to Jesus, very, like, had, a, had what I would say is like a personal relationship with God. Uh, and so an, someone else was talking to them. They're like, oh, do you want to get baptized? Or do you want to, like, are you, are you like, telling people about your, your relationship with God, how, you, how you, you're a Christian? And the person said, I would rather not get baptized because my friends don't like Christianity and they think believing in God is kind of foolish and stupid and judgmental. And so I'd rather not tell them. You see what I'm saying here? Uh, This person is an illustration of caring more about your relationships, your sense of belonging in your friend group, Um, your sense of belonging in your family, we're going to get to that later, your sense of safety and security and being at home. Because to be a Christian is to believe things that are unpopular. And so if you want to maximize your appeal to people um, in California, if you want to be a politician running for office in California, um, I'm not sure. I guess it depends on what region you're in and what whether you're running for conservative or liberal we're going into an election season woohoo everyone excited (laughs) um it depends on what what you're running for but for many people it would be a bad idea to say i'm a christian if you're running for office in the south maybe maybe you have to do that or else you won't get elected depending on where in the south it depends but this is what i'm saying jesus is saying Don't think that if you believe in me and follow me and are my disciple, it's not going to cost you anything. And so potentially, these are things it will cost you. And so he's asking you, do you understand what it means to be committed to me? Now, let me use another illustration. Um, We're going to talk about this later, but being a disciple is kind of like being married to someone, where if you're committed to someone, you are giving up other options. Like, I'm not looking at other girls. I'm married to Ashley. That's my commitment. If we're fighting, I'm still committed to her. I'm not gonna like, I'm not gonna go like behind her back. That's not what marriage is. (laughs) And so in the same way, Jesus is asking, do you realize what you're getting into? Do you realize what type of commitment I'm asking for? He's asking for, I mean, we're gonna talk about this later, but it's like a love relationship. He's talking about being the priority in your life where he's saying, I am God, I am man, you were made to have a relationship with me, and this is what I want. I want your your allegiance. I want you to love me. And so this is actually why, uh, a lot of the reason why we do things the way we do at our church. Um, I talk a lot about not pressuring people to become Christian. Part of that is I'm trying to do what Jesus is doing. I'm trying to say, you should understand the cost of following Jesus, that it might cost you friendships, it might cost you family relationships, it might cost you all kinds of stuff, but I want you to do it because you want to do it. And we're going to talk later about why you might want to do that, okay? So to give up your place. Second, you have to give up your people. To another, he said, follow me. So right off the bat, the first guy comes up to Jesus like, I want to follow you. The second one, Jesus says to him, will you follow me? He's calling out the person saying, come follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. This is one of the super weird sayings of Jesus. So if there, there are all these books where it says like the hard sayings of Jesus or like the confusing things Jesus said, this is always in them. 
Um, the guy says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So uh, commentators are split as to what this first part means. There are two options. One of them is he has to do a funeral for his dad. The second one is actually very different. The second one, and I would lean towards this one more, is the second one is saying, I want to fulfill my familial obligation to my dad before I leave and follow you. You get me? So I want to take care of my older elder. Maybe my dad is elderly or he needs, he's, he needs some kind of help. I want to take care of him. Or it could be, this is another likely one, my dad would look down on me or would not be okay with me following Jesus. And so I'm going to wait till he's dead so I don't have to put pressure on my relationship with him in order to follow you. You guys get me? And so this, he's saying, what is he saying? I will follow you. I want to follow you, but let me first go and do this other thing. And now, so Jesus is saying, if you have any first, like let me first do this, you're not understanding who Jesus is. You're not understanding what discipleship is. And this is how challenging the statements Jesus is making are. And I would like to like temper this and say, if you have, so, so this passage is basically saying, if you put anything first over Jesus, Jesus doesn't want you to be his disciple. <laughs> you could even say it as strongly as that, right? And I understand what I'm saying because I know what it's like to put things over Jesus. Um, I'm not an especially brave person when it comes to talking to people about my faith. But uh, I have done that in the past, and in my heart of hearts, uh, anyway, okay, let me, let me keep going. So uh, Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. And again, this is a really shocking statement. What he's saying is, you people, like over there, the people who are not my disciples um, are spiritually dead, and their values and commitments, everything that they build their lives around is very different than the disciple who builds their life around following me. And so I would, I would say this is family obligation where Jesus says, um, you know, you must hate father and mother. And what he's saying is, if your obligation to your parents is more important to you than being a disciple of Jesus, then you don't understand what it means to be my disciple. And he uses hyperbole which is he's exaggerating. He's saying something, yeah, you know you're going to go to literature class, right? Um, hyperbole. He's, he's saying something very exagger in an exaggerated manner to get our attention, but he is making a point. If you put your father first over me, you're not understanding who I am. You're not my disciple. Because when it comes down to it, here are two options. You can do what pleases your dad. You can do what pleases Jesus. Uh, not every relationship will have a fork in the road like this, but some will. And you will be forced to choose between something that will please your parents and please God. And this is really challenging. This is what happens. Jesus is trying to prepare us for these types of eventualities. In this context, it would have been just very stark. Um, when we work with, uh, like, uh, Bob Clinton, who's a missionary in Nepal and India, you hear a lot about Christians in these areas who are part of a village who's like Hindu. And like I've heard stories where this is the son, I, th I think it was the son or daughter of the village chief, the Hindu village chief. And when this person decided to become a believer, the village chief, their own family said, 
you are no longer able to get water from the well, and I'm going to kick you out of my family. And when this person was making this decision, they had to have known that this was going to happen. But they were basically saying, for some reason, and this is what I want you guys to ask, for some reason, they were willing to do this. And this is wild. Because this type of commitment does not make any sense unless you understand who Jesus is and unless Jesus is extraordinarily attractive and appealing to you. So this is like if you're going to get married to someone who your parents don't approve of, are you willing to go through with it? Because that's how attractive, that's how much you love this person. That's how committed you want to be to them. Same way with Jesus. Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. And he's... so. Jesus is not saying, don't honor your father and mother. He's not saying, don't do any of that. He's just saying, what is going on in your heart? What is your priority? If there is a but first, let me do this, Jesus doesn't want that. He wants you to say, I will first love Jesus and follow him, and then I will also fulfill my obligation to my father after that. Do you know what I mean? Um, and then he says, leave the dead to bury your, their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So he's saying, uh, be single-minded. To be a disciple of mine means to proclaim the kingdom of God. And there, in this little passage is something so cool. There is a contrast he's making between people who are spiritually dead and you who proclaims the kingdom of God. And he's also saying what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of, of God is about resurrection and taking people who were spiritually dead, whose values are informed by all these other things other than God, and saying, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is here. You can come and be resurrected with Jesus to have new values, to have a new identity, to have a new mission in life, and that means to be saved, to believe, to have eternal life. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And again, in each one of these, it actually doesn't say what the person does. It actually doesn't say what the person does, and so we're not sure. Maybe they followed him. Maybe they did do it, or maybe they turned back. Let's look at the third, the, um, okay, real quick. So your people, um, to be a disciple means to put your allegiance to Jesus above your familial obligations. These are not always in conflict with your familial obligations because in the New Testament, Paul talks about how Widows should be cared for by their relatives, right? There's a woman who cannot provide for herself because her husband died, and if you are a relative of that widow, you definitely have to take care of this widow. So you can't say, oh, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm not going to take care of, like, my, my mom, who, who's... But no, that's not it. Um, but instead, it's saying, I will honor my parents out of my love for Jesus. That might mean conflict. <laughs> it might mean saying and doing things that they don't agree with. But it's not out of hate. It's because I love Jesus first, and I put him first. And so um, for you kids, um, like college admissions, like your parents have a track for you. They want you to do certain things in your life. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but you have to kind of think to yourself, are you willing to give up a conventional path? Maybe Jesus won't ask this of you. Because you can glorify God in your workplace, you can glorify God in your schoolwork, being excellent, doing all of that, making money, all that stuff. But if God did ask you, can you do something a little less conventional? Um, will you go off because God has called you to be like a missionary, or to be a pastor, or to do something, you know, like, or just be in your workplace and 
it, it gets really tricky where maybe your company wants you to do something unethical and you have a choice before you where if you do it, you got that promotion. And this means like a 30% increase of your salary. But will you do it? To choose Jesus, to put him first, means giving up money, giving up status for the sake of love for him, where you just won't do it because you love him. You want to please him more than you want to please your boss. This is what it means to be a disciple. Uh, the third one, your past. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. So this one is very similar to the second one, where the, or sorry, similar to the first, it's the first and the second one put together, right? The first one says, I want to follow you. The second one, Jesus says, follow me. And he says, but first, this guy wants to follow him. And then he says, but first, let me do this. Let me first say farewell to those at my home. And so this person probably wants to say, um, I want to make sure I don't damage my relationships in the past. I want to hold on to these people who I've lived my life with. And then Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So again, this is kind of an enigmatic statement. Uh, let me explain it real quick. So uh, this was an agricultural society, and so they would have plowed fields. So to plow a field is to make furrows in the ground, like lines in the ground, um, that are maximizing the amount of seeds and plants you can plant so you can get the most harvest, right? And so they would have had a plow which was pulled by oxen, and this, this would have like dug deep holes in the ground so that they could sow weed or whatever it might be. And when he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, what he's saying is, if you're plowing your field and you are not focused on where you're going, all kinds of bad stuff will happen. If you're always looking back and you're thinking to yourself, oh, I wonder what's for lunch, or like there are all kinds of bad things that could happen. Number one, you won't plow straight. This would have been obvious for them. You need the lines to be parallel to each other so that you can maximize the growth of the field. But number two, the ground was really rocky, and I learned this from commentators, but they, they say that basically um, if you're not looking where the plow is going, there were huge boulders and rocks in the ground, and if you run your plow into the boulder, the plow will break, and that'll cost you tons and tons of money. It'll ruin your schedule. And so Jesus is saying, if you're putting your hands to the plow, you're trying to do work for God, and you're always looking back at what my dad says, your past, the things you're missing out on, the better options that you're not doing, uh, you are not fit for the kingdom of God, and the word fit here is unfortunate because it almost seems like you're not allowed to go in the kingdom of God if you look back. If you ever have doubts or if you ever think about your past, like, what would my life be like if I didn't become a Christian? Like, I've thought about that. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? No. It's the, the word fit is more usefully translated useful. You won't be useful for the kingdom of God. You won't be used by God to plow, to, to do the purpose that you were made for as a disciple if you're constantly thinking about your past, what you're missing out on, what, what better stuff, like, it's like Jesus is now your girlfriend, but what if there is a better option, you know? You have to give up your past. So now, we've said a lot of, like, really hard things, 
And so I want to give you guys a few things that have been really helpful for me because Jesus is so stark in this passage. He seems so kind of harsh and mean and like he's asking for so much. He's so demanding. But I want, what I want you to know is these are practical things that I think, so this is not from the text. You could get these from other texts. But what I would say is there are two, two practical things for you to think about as you go. Um, if you want to be committed to Jesus and a disciple, um, Jesus in this passage is talking about really big things that you give up. But what I would say is uh, Jesus does not, for most of us, throw us into the deep end. He has a start with the small waves. So uh, there's a book I really love by a Christian therapist um, who died a while ago. I, I read a lot of books by dead guys um, and girls. And he wrote a book about how he visited Maui uh, at the, I think, the late 1990s. And so that was kind of novel. He uh, was watching in Maui surfers surf huge waves. And he saw these incredibly skilled surfers who were on these $1,000 boards, and they were so skillfully navigating the, the tubes of the waves and these huge crashing waves. They were going with the flow, whatever it might be. And then he saw near the shore, there were the, the tiny little waves by the beach, and there were these young kids who were like basically trying to surf on like pieces of plywood, like super cheap, like decaying, rotting pieces of wood or whatever it might be. So really cheap pieces of surfboard, and they were starting with very small waves. And he's basically saying, this is an illustration for being a disciple of Jesus. Don't always pay attention to the really big things that Jesus is asking for you. Pay attention to the very small waves. Like, start with the small things. So let me give some examples. Um, if you want to share your faith as a disciple, start really, really small. And this is what I would say. I would say don't even worry about sharing the gospel with someone and saying, if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. Start with being transparent about your relationship with God. This is something very small and very different, where I would say, um, when your friend asks you what you did on Sunday, your temptation is to say, oh, I'm seeing some guilty looks. Sorry, I'm not going to look at you. Um, uh, your temptation is to say, oh, I don't know, just doing homework and stuff, you know? And another option could be, oh, you know, I went to church. Doesn't have to be a big deal. You're just being honest, right? You're self-disclosing. If someone asks you, like, oh, what do you think the meaning of life is? Just having an answer for that and saying, you know, I think my meaning of life is to love and follow Jesus and serve him. You know? So you're not even, like, being really aggressive. You're not, like, forcing the truth down people's throats. You're just being who you are, just being transparent. And that's a small wave, you know? If you can't do that, are you really going to be able to share with someone who doesn't believe in God like, believe in God. Like, it doesn't make sense. So you start with small things. Um, another small thing would just be, be committed to God every day, where it's like, pray to him. You know, like, pray to him when the thought crosses your mind. So start with the small waves. Second one, and this one is really important for you. Total commitment is different than total obedience. Total commitment is, does not equal total obedience. And this is all throughout scripture. This is all throughout scripture. I am totally committed to my wife. Does this mean I'm a perfect husband? Absolutely not. I am not a perfect husband. I am not a perfect father. But who I really am, 
my deepest heart of hearts is I'm committed to my wife, I'm committed to my son, I want to love them the best I can. That doesn't mean I'm perfect. When Jesus is asking for total commitment and to put him first, what he's saying is I want a heart attitude where your deepest heart of hearts, you can say to God, honestly, I want, I want to go wherever you want to take me. Wherever you go, I want to follow you. And then in reality, in the practice of it, we mess up all the time. We're learners. And Jesus expects that. To be a disciple is to be a learner, which means you mess up. And Jesus is so faithful and committed to imperfect disciples. And so if you've ever said in your heart when someone does an altar call, I want to follow Jesus, praise God for that. Just understand, when you mess up, and you will mess up, that is totally okay. So let me give you a few illustrations. Um, Peter, the famous disciple Peter, denied Jesus three times. Did Jesus give up on him because he denied Jesus three times? No. Peter thought he was totally committed. All throughout the scripture, Peter's like, I'm going to walk on water. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. I'm going to die with you. And then when it came down to it, his obedience was not perfect, and he denied Jesus three times. And then later on, Jesus came up to him, and three times he said, Peter, do you love me? If you love me, then feed my sheep. And in doing that, he was saying, even if you're imperfect, even though you denied me, even though you didn't tell your friends you went to church, that's okay, because if you love me, you will want to serve me, you want to love people and share the gospel with them. And then he was restoring Peter and saying, all is forgiven, will you stand up again and try again, you know? And then the other thing is we have the Holy Spirit where the, the Spirit of God is bringing us assurance and boldness and power to share the gospel, um, to live out our faith. So total commitment does not equal total obedience. Um, and so I want you to ask yourself this question, like why do you want to commit to Jesus? Why? We've talked about practices that Jesus has done. We've talked about like scripture, prayer, all the stuff. We've talked about practices, actions, all the stuff. But for you, you must ask the question, why do you want to commit to him? And so, okay, I know, I want to articulate, I want to at least show that I can articulate maybe some of your attitudes. Um, and I'm not trying to be like condescending. When I ask you why commit to Jesus, the only reasons you have is because like maybe my parents would be happy if I got baptized. Because I really don't believe in God, and I have a lot of questions about science, about sexuality, about a bunch of different things. And do you know what I would say? That is totally fine, because Jesus says, know what you're getting into. And here's the other thing. If you don't know who Jesus is, why would you ever want to commit to him? You get me? Why would you ever want to make such a serious com commitment? Why would you want to get married with someone who you've met for a day? You want a one date with them. You don't know them at all. Why would you want to commit to them? This is what churches are bad at. Churches are like, commit to Jesus, commit to Jesus. And, and you're like, who's Jesus? What's Jesus like? We want you to ask those questions and know who Jesus is. And only after this process of coming to know him through reading the gospels, through hearing people talk about him, through actually encountering him with spiritual experience and stuff like that, then you can start to think through this question of committing to Jesus. Um, here, now, here's the part where I'm going to, like, try to persuade you a little bit. The reason that I would encourage you to commit to Jesus is because I think Jesus is great, but also because I want to do a wisdom contest with you. I want to do a wisdom contest with you. Um, there's a famous theologian named St. Augustine, 
And he has a very famous quote where he says, uh, you, God, you have made me for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. What he's saying is our hearts are made to be in an intimate love relationship with God and Jesus, and everything else will leave your heart restless and unsatisfied. And this is the bet that I'm banking my life on. When I'm leaving behind all of these possibilities, I could have become a novelist, I could have done whatever, I could have become a professional basketball player. Just kidding. Um, I could dream of becoming, I'm leaving behind all these things, right? What makes me not look back? It's because I bet, I count on the fact that these things will actually not fulfill me. If I pursue any other path or any other person, if I put anyone else first, my heart will still be restless. And so for those of you in youth group, for those of you who are adults, have you tried the different paths that people say will make you happy? Have you looked for satisfaction and contentment in sexual conquest, in drugs, in pleasure, in money, in work? Will those things really fulfill you? Here's the wisdom contest. Try it out. See how it's working for you. If those things fulfill you, you have no reason to follow Jesus. But if you know something of this, if you think that being beautiful and skinny will fulfill you, see how that treats you. See how it's working out for your mental health. I'm serious, this is like, these are the things. If you think being really buff, being really strong will make you happy. I'm really buff, I'm still not, I'm just kidding. I'm not happy. <laughs> that doesn't make me happy. But Jesus does. My heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. That is the thing I am banking on. And if you try this out, I believe it will be true in your life. There is a cost, but there is joy to commitment. So let's keep going. Let me give a few illustrations. Dean Martin Lloyd-Jones, my favorite preacher, Dean Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, has a really inspirational testimony to me. So this was in the early 1900s. Uh, he was a extraordinarily talented medical student, and he became a fantastically successful doctor. He was a student to Lord Horder, who was the royal physician. And so he was running in, like, you know, Meghan Markle, the royal family, all that stuff in England. He was running with the royals. So he was at the very top. He was at the very top of his profession. He had won extraordinarily prestigious awards for his medical practice. And he was a shooting star. He was going straight to the top. At some point, he felt the call of God to preach the gospel and become a preacher and share the gospel with people and become a pastor. And so he decided to give up his practice of medicine. And so to give you a sense of how famous he was, this became like a kerfuffle in the, in the newspaper. Like this is like the New York Times saying, Joshua, you're such a big deal that when you make a career change, we're gonna interview you about it and ask you why you did it. And what they said to him is, like, was this really worth the sacrifice to you? You're giving up money and fame and prestige. And think of all the good you could do as a, as a medical doctor. Isn't that too much to give up? Isn't the cost too high to what you're doing? And he said, this is not a sacrifice at all. I don't see this as losing anything because of what I'm gaining. 
I'm gaining the greatest privilege in the world to be a preacher of the gospel. That's what he, he said. And he said, I have been caring for people's physical bodies, which is extraordinarily important and awesome, and you can glorify God through this. But he basically said, I'm tired of caring for their bodies when their souls are going to go to hell. And I want to care for their spiritual needs. And that's why he said, this is not a sacrifice. This is not a cost to me. I would do this in a heartbeat again a thousand times. And then his whole life changed because of that. He did not, the cost was there. He was sacrificing place, people, his past. But it was all worth it to him because Jesus was that good to him. Another example, Nabil Qureshi. Um, this guy was a theologian and apologist um, who also was a medical doctor. He went to medical school. His parents were devout Muslims, and he was a devout Muslim. In college, he started having encounters with Christian apologists who convinced him at the truth of Jesus' resurrection, uh, death and resurrection. And so he became a Christian, knowing that his parents would be extremely upset, and this would cause a huge rift in his family. Not only that, he married a white woman, which was also bad for them. And not only that, he decided to not be a doctor anymore. And so for this family of immigrants who had left everything, their family, their home, to go to the United States so their kids could have a better future, so their son could become a doctor, a successful doctor with money and everything, he ruined everything for them in one fell swoop. And so his parents didn't go to his wedding. His parents basically were so devastated by this that they said, you know, like, I can't believe you would do this to us. They even said, you can become a Christian, that's fine, but why do you have to leave your medical practice? Why do you have to stop being a doctor? Think about how you could help our family with the money. Think about the status, think about all of these things. And, he, and so eventually, his parents came around a little bit. They came to love and know his wife and uh, he, had, a, he has, had at least one kid, I think. And then, sadly, um, he passed away at the age of 34 from stomach cancer. Uh, so he had an incredibly short life. But in his incredibly short life, he went all over the world sharing this story of, there's a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And at the end of the book, it always gives me chills. Like, this whole testimony, this whole book by him gives me chills. He says... Um, at the end, all suffering is worth it to follow Jesus. He is that amazing. All suffering. He, the suffering of his parents being disappointed with him, all of it was worth it because Jesus was so amazing. And so to be a disciple means giving up these things. But really the heart of discipleship here is to look at Jesus and say, you are so amazing and wonderful that I'm willing to give up everything. I'm so in love with you that no other relationship comes close to my commitment to you. That's what it means to be a disciple. But the incredible thing about Jesus is why would you commit to him? Because he is so loving and gracious, because he acted first in loving you, and he went to the cross to die for you so that you could be saved. When he's asking for your commitment, he's only doing it after he's given everything for you. He says, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus gave up his heavenly throne. Jesus gave up his riches and his comfort and his pleasure to become human, to die on a Roman cross, to be raised again. He went through all of that for you. 
And so he's not asking anything of you that he didn't do first. And not only that, he's promising you the pleasures, the joy, the peace that far outweighs, far outweighs the cost, the loss. And when you talk to people who have been Christian a long time, they will all say that. My dad, when I talk to him, says, I have been through a lot. This is what my dad says. He's had a hard life. Um, on a family dysfunction scale, he rated himself a 7 out of 10. And I think that might be too low because his family was super messed up. And so he says, I've been through a lot of suffering in my life, but God has always been there for me. And I don't regret anything. I don't regret anything about being a follower of Jesus. And so if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, do you know the cost? But then here, let me tell you this. Let me end with this. To be a disciple of Jesus is an incredible treasure. It's an incredible joy. To know Jesus is like, I, I love Jesus. And when I, sorry, I'm getting excited. When I talk to people who really know Jesus, I was talking to a pastor friend the other day, and he goes through a lot of tough stuff. His life has been really good, really hard. And he's like, when I have hard times with my wife, the thing that gets me through is when I talk to Jesus, I love him so much. And I experience his love and affection and strength and comfort, whatever I go through. And so because of that, I'm willing to give up everything. That's what we want for you. Like, we want you to know Jesus in that way. Jesus is not a way to get A's at Valley Christian. Jesus is not a way to please your parents. Jesus is the lover of your soul, someone who deeply desires a close, intimate relationship with you and then wants you to be bought in. Now, again, this is something that will happen in your life over time where Jesus increasingly will persuade you. He's gonna win you over as you have a relationship with him where you can increasingly trust him. You increasingly experience his love and trust him. So let me read these, this last passage. Um, this is from Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. In these two parables, the author is saying, to be a disciple of Jesus, you sell everything. But why do you do it? Do you do it out of fear? Do you do it out of familial obligation? Do you do it so you can belong at church? No, you do it out of joy. It costs you everything, but it is worth it. It's far more than worth it. It's the best deal in the world because this guy is selling everything he has to get a treasure in a field, and that treasure in the field is 100% profit. He made 100 times back his investment. The pearl merchant sold all of his goods, all of his house, his wares, his pearls. He made 1,000 times back his investment. To know Jesus, to sell everything to follow him, do it out of joy because he is just that amazing. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, Father, I thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son to die for us, that we are worth a son to you. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you deeply love us so much that you would die, you would give up everything so that we could know you and so that you could win us over and have a relationship with us. I pray, Father, you would woo us and minister to our hearts in ways that would help us to trust you and help us to dive in and commit to you. 
And then I pray, Lord, that you would use us in amazing ways and you would bring us great assurance as we follow you as your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.